You'll join me in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 this morning, we are looking at verses 9 through 11, and you can find the text on page 942 in the Blue ESV Bible if you want to follow along there. The title of our sermon this morning is Saved by His Life, and the key words for our worshipers in training are blood, wrath, and rejoice. Well, in 2012, there was a man by the name of Felix Baumgartner, and Felix did a skydive from 128,000 feet, or 24 miles above the earth's surface. It was the first skydive ever from space, and very likely also the very first supersonic dive. Baumgartner is known as Fearless Felix. He traveled in a pressurized capsule. It was carried by a 55-story ultra-thin helium balloon. And when he finally jumped, it is believed that he reached the speed of 690 miles per hour, which is faster than the speed of sound from an altitude three times higher than the average jetliner flying in the sky at any given time. Fascinating. Now, When preparing for the jump and in interviews with Baumgartner and crew, it became clear that there was no opportunity for air if he was going to survive this jump. When he was exiting the capsule, if he made any contact with that capsule at all, he could have torn his pressurized suit, exposing him to an extreme lack of oxygen and temperatures as low as minus 70 degrees. And almost instantly, lethal bubbles would form in his bodily fluids, killing him immediately. Well, thankfully for Baumgartner, he was successful in his jump. He landed with a parachute in Roswell, New Mexico, the worst place in the world you could have landed in a prepared landing zone. I can say that. I used to live in New Mexico. My wife lived in Roswell, or around there, Gallup, yeah. Now, it's interesting to me to read about this jump because something that is noticeably missing from all of it is any kind of safety backup plan. This was all or nothing. There was no backup oxygen. There was no extra layer of bodily protection. There was simply the suit he was wearing, and that shielded him from all of the external elements. But, you know, the opposite is is true as well with military operations being conducted. If, If they're jumping into a scenario in a combat situation and it's below 700 feet for a quick infill, they don't even wear a reserve parachute because... If your main parachute fails, there's no time to pull a reserve. It doesn't even matter. So you don't even, you don't even wear it. It just gets in the way. And so sometimes jumping like this is an all-or-nothing proposition. And so if you're a bomb gardener, if you're a, if you're a paratrooper, and you, you want to make sure that your equipment isn't something that was purchased online and listed as used like new, <laughs> you want the best. You want a good inspection, you want to make sure that you don't have any issues even before you leave the ground, because once you're off the ground, it's too late. Well, this is really how a lot of Christians think about the Christian life. We, we have this 
natural inclination toward a works righteousness, a works-based mentality of the Christian mind. And as a result, we think that when we become Christians, we've taken this jump, and if we're not careful, we're going to tear the protective barrier, and the end will be an epic disaster. And so we have this mindset that, that while we've taken this jump and we're making this descent, we need to do that with a repair kit in hand. And if we see any small tears, we think we're going to be able to patch them up really quickly before everything gets too bad. But we realize that's an impossible task when you're falling at 690 miles per hour. And so we struggle, we strive, we toil in vain to patch the holes and to sow the tears, and we might even reach for our reserve, but we realize it's not there. And all of it is in vain because there's nothing that we can do on our own to fix it. It's already too late. The damage is already done. Our safety barrier cannot be repaired by us no matter how hard we try. But man, do we try. I had a bad week, I had a lot of anger, I didn't treat my spouse well, I was short with my children, whatever it is. So this week, I'm going to make it all up to God so that He'll be pleased with me. I'm going to read more, I'm going to pray more, I'm going to study more, I'm going to call more people, I'm going to volunteer more of my time. I need to make up for it. We think we can do good and right things as a means to make up for something to balance the scales, to keep us from being exposed to the elements that we might die, but we never stop to think we can't actually do it. It's already too late. So what do we do? Well, as we look at our text this morning, as we pick up in chapter 5, once again we continue in Paul's line of thought, his lengthy discourse on justification by faith. You'll recall back in chapter 3, he showed us that we are justified by the work of Christ. It, is his, it was his active obedience to obey the law of God, to fulfill his covenant obligations, to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death, and to be resurrected to defeat sin and death on behalf of all who believe. And then in chapter 4, he showed us primarily by talking about the faith of Abraham that we are justified by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, all a gift of God, not by any of our works whatsoever, not through our own obedience, not by anything we have done, not by anything we are doing, not by anything we will do. It is all by grace, through faith alone, that we are made right with God. And now in chapter 5, Paul is showing us the fruits of our justification. We're beginning to see that if God has already accomplished the more difficult work of sending His one and only Son to live and die in our place, He will also accomplish the final work so that we have nothing to fear. Paul is untangling our confusion because he knows that we have a very difficult time thinking biblically about our salvation. We think we're in this free fall, and we have to fix everything so we can make it. And Paul's directing our thinking to be more clear, to be, to be more sure. 
And He's helping us to think not only for today, but to consider what is coming on that great day when Christ returns. To what shall we look that will give us confidence in our eternal life and that our eternal life with God is secure? That's our direction this morning. So, beginning in verse 9 of Romans chapter 5, we read, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, I I keep mentioning this, but it's important for us to see that Paul's argument is is layered. He keeps stacking and stacking and stacking. He's like Italian, making the perfect lasagna, just keeps building up. He's building this argument. He's helping us to see that this goes deeper than we ever thought it went. And it's important for us to see every single layer so we can really grasp just how secure we are in our justification so that our our tendency in life won't be to reach for our works when we want assurance and our tendency is not to, to doubt God's love for us and our tendency is to not doubt God's faithfulness. He wants our tendency to change. Now, you'll remember back at the beginning of Uh, of the chapter in verse 1. Paul began with those words, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been justified, therefore, we have peace. And then in verse 3, he wrote, not only that, but wait, there's more. What's some of the fruit of our justification? We can rejoice in our sufferings because our sufferings produce endurance, and our endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame. It's all the means by which God is pouring His love into our hearts by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells within each Christian and within His church. And then last week, Paul reminded us that while we were still weak, While we were still helpless, we couldn't do anything for ourselves, and so at the right time, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us. God loved us. And so, He sent His Son to live and to die for us. And so we get to verse 9, and Paul's still not done. Notice he says in verse 9, since therefore, and then we'll see it again in verse 11, more than that. Notice layer upon layer upon layer, it keeps building. It gets better and better. And, and, and hopefully you have this growing intensity of thought as you look through this chapter as if this wasn't good enough already. It just keeps building and building. This is the world's greatest infomercial. (laughs) Justification, peace, endurance, character, hope, Christ taking your place. 
But we're not done yet. There's more. And Paul's main aim here is to increase our assurance as Christians. So if you struggle with assurance, which is all of us from time to time as Christians, this is for you. This is God's Word to you through the Apostle Paul that you would have assurance. Paul wants you to know as a Christian for certain that God is 100% irrevocably for you and that He is with us through all tribulation and all distress, and he, he really emphasizes that we are secure even on the day of final judgment when the wrath of God is poured out on this world. And so the first thing we see in verse 9 this morning is that you are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, and so you will be saved from the wrath of God. Now, it's important for us to remember who and from what we are saved from. Always, always keep this little phrase in your mind. We are saved by God from God. We are saved by God from God. In other words, God saves us from His wrath by or through what He has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, if you're in Christ, you have been declared righteous. It is a legal declaration, and you have a right standing before God, and that is forever. From the very moment, from the very second you are declared righteous, from the moment God declares that you are not guilty, this is a forever status before God. You won't be retried there will be no more evidence that can convict you. There won't be an appeal. You won't be sent to death row, even though that is exactly what every one of us deserves. Why? Because remember, Paul went to great lengths to show us earlier in Romans, to show us that we're, we're not good people. We aren't righteous on our own. In fact, he said very plainly in Romans chapter 3, citing the Old Testament, he said, none is righteous. No, not one. Not one of us. And so, on what basis could we ever have hope that we would be declared not guilty in the courtroom of heaven? Well, God declares us righteous because of what we call imputation. I'm going to have several theological terms for you this morning. I will try to help us understand them. And this is the first one, imputation. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. And we need to be clear on this. In, in this life, on this earth, you are not righteous. You don't become righteous because you have been justified. You are, however, declared righteous. How? When God looks on you, He sees that you have been covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so God sees that all that is required of you has been satisfied for you to satisfy His wrath against you. And it was all done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is imputation. Another way to think about this is if, if you had an account, and that account had a negative balance that was so significant that you could never make it up, 
You will forever have a negative balance in the bank of heaven on your own, and it is impossible for you to ever do enough to settle the difference, to bring your account current. But when you are justified, all of Christ's righteousness for you is credited to you, so your account is now more than current. It's not just a zero balance now. It is, in fact, overflowing, so you will never run out no matter what. And so every righteous act of Jesus' life, every time He showed mercy, every time He was obedient to His parents, every time He was kind to His siblings, every time He healed and forgave and loved others, that belongs to you. Every time Jesus prayed to the Father in dependence and obedience, that belongs to you. Every act of faithfulness, when He did what His flesh did not want, but He did the difficult things that we could never do, that belongs to you. Every time Jesus was truthful, even when the truth was, was tough, even when the truth was inconvenient, even when the truth was uncomfortable, Jesus told the truth, and that is for you. All that Jesus was, all that Jesus is, all that Jesus did, it all belongs to you, Christian. You couldn't do it. You cannot do it. But Jesus did it, and it all belongs to you. And then, when the time came for all of your sins to be accounted for, when all that you have done in defiance of God's law, and not only what you have done, but all that you will do in this life, was called to be accounted for at the right time, Christ died, and His death belongs to you. Now, there are generally two ways in which justification is talked about in the Bible, that all of this that belongs to you is credited to you. The first way is what we call expiation. This is the act of God removing the guilt of our sins from us. Because of Christ's death, we are no longer held responsible for our sins even though we are very much guilty of committing those sins. That is expiation. The other way justification is talked about is propitiation. And we saw this all the way back in chapter 3, and this is what Paul has in mind here, mainly as he is writing in chapter 5, propitiation. And you'll recall that propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath as a result of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Christ's death on the cross was the sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God for us. Jesus took every bit of the wrath of God on Himself for the Christian. He extinguished the wrath of God by swallowing it whole. Remember what the old, that the Old Testament it goes to great lengths to show us this, that blood must be shed for God's justice to be satisfied. There's no other way than blood. 
And the blood of bulls and goats and rams was all insufficient. And indeed, your own blood is insufficient to satisfy the requirements of God. And so, and so Christ's blood has to be shed as the perfect, spotless sacrifice so that there would be nothing left for the Christian to endure. And as a result, God's justice is satisfied, and so therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, it would be unjust for God to judge the justified. This is all legal terminology, the talk of justification, of being reconciled, we'll look at in a moment, of receiving the righteousness of Christ. This is all legal terminology, so think of it in in legal terms. Even in our own United States Constitution, in the civil realm of law, we have the Fifth Amendment, something called the Double Jeopardy Clause. It says that no person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. In other words, once a case has been tried and the verdict has been rendered, it cannot be tried again. It would be unjust to try someone for the same crime twice. The facts have been presented, the evidence has been weighed, and the declaration has been made. Now, even though you and I know that we are all guilty, and the evidence against us is irrefutable and overwhelming, our defense is, yes, I am guilty, but Christ paid my penalty. You see, if Christ paid the penalty, and yet we were still made to pay the penalty ourselves, it would be double jeopardy. It's unjust. And so God is a just God, and the death of His Son was not in vain, and so His, sat- His, His sacrifice was a satisfactory payment for our sins. And so Paul paints this grand picture in verse 9. You are justified by the blood of Jesus, and as a result of that, you are saved from the penalty of God's wrath. One of the things he's he's helping us do here is, is to remember and to see the importance of not confusing our justification with our sanctification. Or if you'd like, he's, he's helping us to not confuse our, our union with our communion as we relate to God. Now, you, you see, we struggle as Christians. We struggle with assurance because we are emotional beings, and, and we have a tendency to base our thinking on how things are going today. You may have lashed out at your children. You may have chided your spouse. You may be angry at a co-worker. You may be struggling with sinful thoughts. And your thought might be something like, I'm supposed to be a Christian, but this isn't how Christians act and think. If we're, if we're walking with the Lord and, and we struggle to find any assurance that we are right with God, but, but Paul is reminding us Your salvation is not based on what you do or don't do today. You are united to Christ by His blood. Yes, you should read your Bible. 
Yes, you should commune with God in prayer. Yes, you need to be in church. You need the fellowship of the saints. You need to be baptized. You need the Lord's Supper. But these are all gifts for Christians. They are the means by which God brings grace into our lives. But if your Bible intake is lacking, if your prayer life seems lifeless or rote at the time, our our instant response ought not to be that God obviously doesn't love us or God obviously doesn't care for us. Our response ought to be that we cry out to God all the more, that He would increase our desire that we would have sweeter, more fulfilling communion with Him. And do you know what He does? When we ask God to do that, what does He do? He hears us and He responds to us. Maybe not instantly, but even then, In those times when our communion with God seems dry and lifeless, He is still teaching us. He is still growing us. He is still guiding us. He is still helping us. Remember, brethren, He is our Father who knows exactly what we need, exactly when we need it, and the very thing we may need for a season to jolt us from our apathy is a sense that we are not as close to the Lord as we could or should be. It doesn't mean He's forgotten you. It doesn't mean He's shunning you or that He's keeping you at arm's length. The Lord is there whether you are fully checked in or not, and He certainly hasn't called you to be His child just so He could forget about you. So Paul wants us to remember, yes, things in life are tough sometimes, but you are secure in Christ. Now, don't hear me wrong. This isn't easy believism. This isn't to assume that God never requires anything of us as His children. As Christians, we we will have a desire to be near to God through the means He has provided. But in the flesh, we struggle, don't we? We struggle. Sometimes we have some amazing mountaintop experiences when we know the nearness of God and it is real and it is felt unlike anything else. Sometimes we maybe hear a particular sermon that God really uses in our lives or, or we, we can be singing a rich song or we can be encouraged through prayer or the words of a brother or a sister in Christ can be so helpful to us, and we just have this overwhelming sense that we are loved and cared for and protected by God. But then there are times when it seems like we're in a spiritual desert and nothing makes sense, and we're just struggling in our communion. We, we keep running ourselves into a spiritual wall. And as much as our heart wants out, we feel trapped in spiritual lifelessness. And, and Paul is here saying, be patient, dear brother. Be patient, dear sister. You are secure in Christ and nothing will change that. We can work on your sanctification. There's hope. The Lord is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And it's in those times more than any other that we need the work of the Holy Spirit to convince us by the Word of God that we are declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not by our work. It is by all that Christ has accomplished. 
So often we are crippled by the tyranny of wanting everything in life to be exactly right. And it's when, it, when it's not exactly right, we just jump into this cycle of never being satisfied because we're depending on ourselves to make it all work out. And so when we, when we make the jump and we feel like we're in a full-on supersonic descent through this life, we panic. And, and so... What do we do? We look for answers. We try to find ways, and, and we want to know why things are the way, we, what, the way they are. And so we begin to take it out on everyone else around us. And, and we get in this twisted mindset, in a way of looking at life, because we can never set things straight. We can never make things right on our own. We think, if only I could just do better by trying harder. And when others get in our way, we take it out on them. We get, we get frustrated with ourselves. We get frustrated with God. And so we grow more paranoid. We, we grow more fearful. And we grow more suspicious of others. And Paul's saying, listen, you have a lot of fears about things right here and right now and about things in the future. You have no control over any of that. But remember, everything for you has already been done. It has all been accomplished already. Christ has paid it all. Don't you love the words to that hymn? Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow. And what is the whitening agent that was applied to wash away our sins? It was the blood of Christ. And so much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. But wait, <laughs> there's more. Verse 10, Paul shows us, you are reconciled to God by Christ's death. As if being justified by God wasn't enough, we now also see that we are reconciled to God. There's a difference between being forgiven and being reconciled. We can forgive someone and still not be reconciled to them. It's very possible that, that we could forgive a person for sinning against us, but there is still a need for that relationship to find restoration. And sometimes that restoration requires a mediator, someone to mediate between us, to bring that reconciliation about. And so you see, it would, be, it would really be incomplete if God justified us in Christ, but we were not reconciled to God. We would have forgiveness of our sins, but we would never have the assurance that God is actually pleased with us. And most Christians tend to think about God in terms of not being reconciled. Okay, He has forgiven my sins, but I, I don't know that He actually likes me. <laughs> and maybe you grow tired of me, hearing this, uh, of me saying this and, and always hearing this, but until we are truly able to grasp it, we need to be reminded of this over and over and over again. God does not just tolerate you. God does not just put up with you. God is not constantly disappointed with you. If you are a child of God, He rejoices over you as His child. 
Listen, you, you, may be, you may be one heck of a child. You may very well be that child that everyone sort of grits their teeth and endures in all of your other relationships with people because you're difficult and you're trying the patience of others all the time. You're tough to reason with. Everyone's sort of expecting you to do or say something that's going to make them cringe. But do you know what God says about you? He says, that's my boy, and I love him. That's my girl, and I love her. Have you ever thought, you know, I think I'm just going to be quiet about being a Christian because I don't think God would ever want anyone to know that He's my Father. I'm not a good representative of the family name, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and hide the fact that I'm one of His children. You ever feel like that? You ever think that? Well, God certainly doesn't think that way about you, even on your worst day. He wants everyone to know that you are His child. He wants everyone to know that you are His friend. He wants everyone to know that you're a Christian. Now, don't take that to mean that that He doesn't want to see change and growth in you. He does, just like we all want that from our own children, right? We all see things in our children that in time we pray they will grow out of or they will make progress in, but we aren't ashamed to call them our children. We don't hide from the fact that they are ours even when they embarrass us. And even more so, the Father claims us as His own because we have not only been justified, we have been reconciled. I love Paul's reasoning here in verse 10. Remember last week, we saw, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And now Paul says, look, if that's the case, If the reality is that we were enemies of Christ and He died for us and purchased salvation and reconciliation, much more, now that we are reconciled, we have been saved by His life. In other words, there is nothing that makes you more reconciled than you are right now. Let's think about this through what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, remember, Jesus told the disciples, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Now, notice how Jesus phrases that. Your brother had something against you, not the other way around. And Jesus says that you need to go and be reconciled to him. Well, listen, we don't always know when someone has something against us, but when we do know, we have this obligation, right? We need to go, we need to be reconciled. And so what can we infer from that as we look at Romans 5 verse 10? We can infer that there was a time when God had something against us and we were in need of reconciliation. We were not just His enemies because we're rebels. He was also our enemy because we're rebels. 
He had enmity with us, against us. The fact of the matter is that we have, as Paul wrote in chapter 1, so suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness that we didn't even have in our minds that we were at enmity with God. In fact, we may have even been convinced that we were just fine with God. But regardless of how we thought about it or what we convinced ourselves of, we were still His enemies, and so He came to be reconciled. So God has wrath toward sinners. He is the enemy of sinners. And yet, we have been reconciled by Him coming to us. By the death of Christ, we are brought near. We are reconciled. And much more than that, because we are reconciled, we shall be saved by Christ's life. Now, this is very much Paul pointing us heavenward, helping us to to look beyond this life into the everlasting. This is about the resurrection life. We will share in the resurrection glory and life of Jesus now and forever, and nothing can, nothing will remove us from that great reality. But wait, (laughs) there's more. That's what I should have called this sermon. But wait, there's more. Finally, Paul tells us there is nothing left for us to do. Verse 11, we are told that we must receive the gift of reconciliation. Now look, we need to be abundantly clear about our own condition. We have broken His laws. We have belittled His glory. We have neglected His fellowship. We have broken trust with His promises. We have rejected His right and His authority to lead us, and it has left us as rebels alienated from God. But the grand story of Scripture is that long before we ever showed up acting this way, God has purchased our reconciliation. The infinite list of offenses and crimes that we have committed worthy of the death penalty were paid in full before we were ever born. And so Paul writes in verse 11, all that is left for us to do to be reconciled to God is to receive the reconciliation. Hear what I'm saying. Don't perform it. Don't earn it. Don't work for it. Don't suffer for it. Don't pay for it. Receive it. It's free. It's a gift. And it is for you. The only thing left for us to do is to rejoice in God and to receive the gift of reconciliation. Now, real quick, notice this short kind of mini theme we see in chapter 5. In verse 2, Paul wrote that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then in verse 3, he wrote that we rejoice in our sufferings. But notice now in verse 11, it's not just rejoicing in hope or suffering, but now we're rejoicing in God Himself. And, and that's the thrust of, of his phrase, not only that, at the beginning of the, phrase, uh, of, of the verse. Not only do we rejoice in hope, Not only do we rejoice in our sufferings, but now we rejoice in the God who has reconciled with us through the blood of His Son. 
And so what Paul means is that we have received the gift of reconciliation, and having received this gift of reconciliation means that we know that in so doing, we are, we are being rescued from the wrath of God, and that leads us to rejoicing. That leads to exaltation. The gift of reconciliation is not the gift of God doing things for you. you. You can say that the gift of salvation is the gift of God doing things for you, rescuing you from sin and, and guilt and hell. You can say that the gift of justification is the gift of God doing things for you, forgiving your sins, counting you as righteous for Christ's sake. But the gift of reconciliation is different. It is God offering us God as Himself, and in Him we rejoice. We not only have Christ's life, Christ's work, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, we now have God as our Father and as our friend. Do you know God as Father and friend? Do you know the God who sent His one and only Son into this world to live the life that you're required to live and could not live? To die the death that you deserve because of all of your sin, of all of your rebellion against God and His authority? Do you know the God who is the Father of His children and the friend of Christians? who raised Jesus from the dead to defeat sin and death that we might live and dwell with Him forever and ever. Do you know Him? Because the constant drumbeat of Scripture is that you can and you're called to come to Him by faith to put your trust and your hope in Him alone. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's no way you can clean yourself up to be worthy of it. He calls you to come as you are to Him by faith, and as you come to Him in humility, He will save you. Will you come to Christ? He calls on all to come to Him that they might come to know true and everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, everything in Romans chapter 5 from verse 1 on, is meant to give us assurance that God is for us now and God will be for us forever. This is God's Word. God wants you to leave here this morning more confident, more assured, more hope-filled and firm with this great truth in your mind if He gave His Son to justify and reconcile His enemies, how shall He not do everything it takes to save His friends? You are His friend. Rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.